With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra set out to solve a murder, and in the process may have uncovered a wrongful conviction after connecting two murders in her hometown. Delia is the host of the Counter Clock podcast, and she began her investigation with the 1997 murder of a woman named Denise Johnson. Denise was found murdered inside of her home on the outer banks of North Carolina. And to this day, her case remains unsolved. Bedelia didn't stop there. Last year, she continued on with season two of Counterclock by investigating another Outer Banks murder. Stacy Stanton was murdered on February 3, 1990. Her case, though, unlike Denise's, was supposedly solved almost immediately. A man named Clifton Spencer was arrested and convicted about a year later. But did he actually kill Stacy Stanton? Finding connections between the two cases through her podcast has led Delia to believe that Clifton may have been wrongfully convicted, and the same man may be responsible for both murders. Delia's here with me today to explain how her process of moving counterclockwise through time has helped to get us closer to finding justice for Stacy and Denise. This is Season 9, Episode 17, Counterclock with Delia D'Ambra. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great to meet you on Zoom. This is uh, yeah. this is this is new for me. I was I'm I'm learning slowly how to use you know the technology everybody else has been using forever. So the <laughs> the first uh, I don't know twelve episodes of the season I did all over the phone, and then people kept suggesting Zoom, and I thought it was too complicated. But it's neat to be able to see and and see where all of you other podcasters record your podcasts. Yeah, uh, with your background, so. I'm I'm looking at your. Is this the background for where you're at right now? Can you describe it to me? And is this where you recorded Counterclock? Yeah. So right now I'm in my home studio. So it's just my like soundproof room um, in our house. It's actually like one of our closets, but we just kind of like transformed it into like a studio. Um, I recorded 
season two of Counterclock, season one of Park Predators here, season one of Counterclock. Um, it was just kind of interesting because of the way like I, I put out the show originally on my own and then began working with Audio Chuck and, and we then re-released season one um, back in, in, in January 2020. So it, it I didn't record all of those episodes in here, some of them, because we remastered that season. I did additional investigation and revoiced and voiced new stuff. So it's kind of a combination of everything that's lived in here. Well, that's really interesting. I didn't realize. I knew that I, I thought it was odd when I was looking into your podcast and started listening to it that season one and season two came out like bang, bang, like one right after another. But you yeah. had already done season one at one point. Yeah. So so like season one, a lot of the content, I think when I initially put it out on my own, I think I had like 10 episodes or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and it got really, really popular, really big, obviously with with community in North Carolina, but just in general podcasting, true crime community. And that's when Ashley Flowers with Audio Chuck was like, hey, this story is amazing. Let's get this out to, um, you know, more bigger audience, because that's what she's really a part of is is a lot of advocating and and kind of getting stories out there that really need to be told. And so we worked together and I said, well, hey, I'm I'm still investigating this. Like I was putting out episodes on my own like week to week. But I was like, I'm, this is still like, there's so much more information I have to get in here. There's updates, there's stuff happening in real time now. Um, and so basically I just, you know, we remastered it, added content, um, added new interviews. Um, so then when we re-released it under the audio Chuck umbrella is when it really got that, that I think attention it truly deserved and was able to get it to more people. Um, and so that's why those seasons came back so close together. But I mean, I'm always working on investigations. Right. So, you know, when it's time to put something out, it's time to put something out kind of thing. Right. And it was so crazy when I can't. One of these days, I'm going to get Ashley on the show. I had no idea when I started this process for the season of Truth and Justice and the upcoming true crime binge as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really getting into all these other true crime podcasts and taking the time to listen to them. If the true crime podcast world were a mafia, Ashley Flowers would be the boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, sure. That's an interesting. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think she just has a a really great um a really great heart for victim advocacy and telling good stories. And she she just gets really invested, like I do. And I think when she heard what I was putting out, she was like, "We we should work together." And it's just it's become something really good. So. Yeah, she's incredible. I mean, her podcasts are great. And then, like I said, I keep coming across other shows that I'm listening to, and, and somehow she's attached somewhere. She's a producer, or they're part of Audio yeah. Chuck. But, but anyway, I want to I want to learn about about you. So, what is, what is your background? And so, you started this podcast as an independent content creator, like like a lot of us. So, what was your background? And then, how did you end up creating your first podcast? Yeah, so my background um, is I was in television broadcast news for like six years. I originally went to to college at UNC Chapel Hill. I uh, graduated in 2014, got into broadcast news, and I was I really liked being um, a general assignment reporter. I, I liked being a crime reporter. Uh, that really was is always will be a passion of mine. TV, I just felt like. It fit me. Um, I'm really personable. I really like to go into communities, meet and talk with people. So that was kind of my life. Um, and then back in beginning of end of 2017, or early 2018, 
Um, I had been doing that for a while, um, having a lot of success, really doing some some cool stories. But I, I wanted to try and transition out of that because I, I had this skill set that I thought could be really helpful in, in doing bigger investigations. And so I decided, you know, let me let me do what I do best, which is investigate and 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 utilize, you know, public records, databases and systems and and speak with victims and their families. People trust me. Let me try and do a podcast. I was a big fan of true crime podcasts that were out there that kind of were more of this independent person. Um, let me try, you know, sort of amateur. But I also knew that I wasn't as amateur because I I had actually been been doing this kind of work professionally, just not in the podcasting space. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of what led me led me into it. And I figured, heck, if if I can do this, you know, in, in this capacity on TV every day, why don't I do something longer form and really try and and dig into something? And so that's just kind of how it how it started. And learning podcasting was like everybody else, which is just you try and you fail and you try and you fail and you, <laughs> uh, you hope for the best. So, yeah, it's funny that process. I was actually I spent an hour talking to a friend last night who's going to be starting a, a true crime podcast. And it's in, they're like, well, what what advice would you give me? And it's like, well, first equipment, I have shelves yep. full of of thousands of dollars of equipment that is useless because I never instead of just getting what I needed first kept not knowing what I needed. And so I got all this piles of stuff and it's, it's, yeah, that process of learning is it's it's so many people, whether they have a journalistic background like you or other podcasters that just have, you know, no background at all. And they just decide to do it. It's, it's just that learning curve doesn't seem to take long before, you know, after you get some different equipment and figure out how to work the software, then next thing you know, you're on the top of the iTunes charts. Yeah. And, I think what was so crazy for me is I was coming from that TV space where, like, if you look at TV news now, local, media market, national, like, you do the most with as little as possible. So, like, there's reporters out there using their cell phones, using, Mm -hmm. like, all these different things to create the product. And so I kind of came from, like, the bare bones to then, like, having, I almost, I feel like I have more time, more equipment, and better things in podcasting, which is kind of weird when you think about it. but. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, initially I was recording Counterclock on two iPhones and a Generation 1 MacBook Air computer. Like, that is what was created, that show right. was created on. And it was it was really awesome. And I, I used um, Resonant Recordings, the, the editing company. They're great. I've always been with them because I knew that that was a big component I wanted was that good quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the base elements of it, I was like, just, you know, pulling from everywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> It's neat to listen to all the all the independent podcasts from the beginning when you you can just hear the you can almost hear when they're getting new microphones and when they're figuring yep. out how to work and you know and when they bring in like resonate recordings or someone and and yep. you can you can watch the quality improve as it goes. I never heard heard that evolution with you because I didn't realize you had remastered everything with uh with Ashley and Audio Chuck. Yeah, just just the season 1, but a lot mm-hmm. of that audio wasn't really remastered. It was always it was always kind of what it was. Um Resonant did a great job at editing that, but mm-hmm. season 2, yeah. I mean, I was I was on that case for almost a year before we even put it out, so that was I was getting that better quality. And that's important to the listener too. Like, I don't want every interview to be a phone interview. What I created Season one, I was working full time and doing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, season two was was doing it basically full time. And like for me as a journalist, like I want to interview people in person. I want right. to read their expressions. I want to see their faces. I want to know if they're uncomfortable. Um, I want to know if they're too eager. 
So in person's always been critical for me, but like this, you know, day and age now and and when you're working full time, like you can't always do that. So if someone's going to call you and talk to you, you know, you got to record it. So it's just, you know, it's it's compromises. But now I'm like in person is my goal. <laughs> yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. I hate doing phone interviews and I never seem to work around. Now, you're, you're from the Outer Banks, right? Yep. Now, do you yep. still live in that area or are, the, are those trips you have to take every time you go interview people from the cases? No, I don't live there anymore. So um, I moved away uh, after after graduating college. I moved to Virginia and then Virginia here to to Florida. But all my family um, is still all there. I mean, they all live on an island. So they're all uh, outer bankers for life. And, you know, we moved there in, in 97 when I was turning four. I had just turned four. So, I mean, I've been there pretty much my whole life. And I go back all the time. Um, not as much this year, but <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, as much as I can go back. Just because it is such a unique and interesting place. And obviously with doing the shows and stuff, it's become even more so interesting. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way with the interview. I'm actually taking, I don't know, hopefully not much of a risk, but I'm going to Houston next week for what's going to be our um, our season 10 case. Because I just, it's been so frustrating through all this, trying to do interviews over the phone and trying to track people down. It's just not the same. And so I have a pile of interviews lined up to go do in person. So. Hopefully yeah. that goes well. So so you said when you went to college, you went to um did you go for journalism? Has that always been your career path? Yeah, so sort of. So when I went out of high school and went to UNC Chapel Hill, I was actually going for chemistry. So I was in the sciences. That was that was my thing. Um about a year and a half in, I changed direct direction entirely. I was doing really well in the sciences, but I kind of tell people, and I even told some of my professors, just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it with your life. And that sounds like bad advice, but I think it's really good advice. Just because you have the skills and the mind to maybe do something doesn't mean that it's your passion. And so my, what my passion became was storytelling, talking with people and telling their stories and learning facts and understanding how systems work, law enforcement systems, you know, mm-hmm. city, municipal systems and stuff. So that's what I became an interest in. And, and Chapel Hill just had, I think it still is one of the top 10 journalism programs in the country. And so I just kind of dove right in and started working for papers and um, working for, I was in sports a little bit at the time, started working for sports teams. I worked for the NHL for a couple of years. And so just kind of all those experiences just got my interest. And I kind of never looked back after that. That's awesome. So did you ever have like, other jobs out of school. It seems like a lot of people that I speak with that went to school for journalism, like, like get in there even while they're in still in school and then continue on. And that's all, is that all you've ever done? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, of course I waited tables and did all that kind of stuff, you know, to pay rent. Um, um, but I worked, yeah. So I worked any opportunity I could get to work in a, a broadcasting or, um, print space, whether that be for papers, internships, um, sports teams. Uh, I worked uh, NASCAR rights. I, anything that was live production, get out there, talk with people, tell a story, put something together. That was any opportunity. So I did. I did tons of stuff. I worked for ACC Network. Um, just uh, you know, in trucks for games, live game events, stuff like that. So I mean, it just was a so many different experiences. But it all goes back to the same thing, which is, can you accomplish a task? Can you put something together that people will watch and that communicates a message? Um, and, you know, all of that was part of it. So, yeah, I was super, super busy in college. I think that's what helped me land my first jobs and, you sure. know, start a career. So, OK, so 
you have, you have all this background and all this this skill set and this case is from your hometown. When you decided to start Counterclock on your own and season one investigates the murder of Denise Johnson, the unsolved murder, how did how did that come to be? Was it was it you were interested in investigating this case and decided to use the podcast to do it? Or did you decide to make a podcast and then choose the case? Um, it was a little bit of both simultaneously because I was like, look, if I'm going to do a podcast, I want it to be on a case that I have some advantages to, which is somewhere where I'm from. I can utilize resources, people. So really, and again, I've told people this before, Denise's case was really just a Google search because I thought, OK, I want to do a podcast on a case in my hometown, in my area. I know the state of North Carolina. I know the systems of North Carolina. I know law enforcement in North Carolina. But I thought surely there won't be an unsolved case, you know, decades old where I'm from or I would know about it. That was not the case. I didn't know about Denise's case um, with any background prior to looking it up. And it still is the only case on Kill Devil Hills Police Department's like, you know, tip page unsolved. It's the only one um, homicide. So so that right there, I was like, boom, immediately, like, I got to do something as soon as I read a couple of sentences into the case of the fact that it's a homicide. There's arson involved. Um, she was a local, you know, all that stuff just really struck me. So it kind of all happened at, at once in that moment. So it wasn't like, I'm going to do this, um, but I don't know what the case is for sure, but I don't even know if it'll be in my hometown, like kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it all happened very quickly. And I mean, as soon as I read about Denise's case, I was like, this has got to be it. Like, there's so many things I feel like I can do. And that's just how it happened. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So, Delete, you have... This is interesting. Most people that I've brought on, other content creators, to talk about their podcasts, uh, we have them talk about a case. And so, I think when I first reached out to you, I was like, we can talk about Denise's case, which is season one, or Stacy's case, which is season two. But then as you know, I'm kind of binging through your podcast as we're having these conversations, and I realized that somewhere towards the end of season two, the two cases connect together. At least they seem to be connected together. So, so let's start, if we can. Can you break down kind of the basic beats of the Denise Johnson case, which is your season one, just kind of the backbone of that case? And then Stacey Stanton's case, which is your season two case. And then we'll talk about the work you did and how they end up connecting together. 
Yeah, for sure. So Denise Johnson's case, Denise Johnson was 33 years old. She was murdered in July of 1997. She's brutally stabbed. Um, and then her home was partially set on fire, multiple fires set inside of her home um, in Kill Devil Hills, which is, if you look at the Outer Banks, it's kind of in the center of the Outer Banks. It's the most populated part of the Outer Banks. High tourism, high traffic. Um, she was from there, a uh, beautiful, beautiful woman in the prime of her life. Um, case went cold almost immediately. I mean, there was some initial suspects and then everything just sort of dissipated. And there has never been anyone named as a suspect or person of interest and no arrest ever made. Um, and that that was, you know, in 97. So if you look at and listen to season one, you get a total reinvestigation of that case on on my end and what law enforcement is now currently doing on it. Um, I talked to a lot of people that know a lot of stuff. Um, a lot of information came out that had never come out before. So that's just kind of like the nuts and bolts of of that one. Okay. For Stacy's case, so season two of Counterclock was me going back to my hometown, reinvestigating an even older murder. So the murder of Stacey Stanton took place in February of 1990. And very shortly after the crime, a suspect was developed, an arrest was made, and a man named Clifton Spencer was um, essentially convicted by no contest plea bargain. Um, what my investigation found and what is, I believe, the truth is that Mr. Spencer is, in fact, not the perpetrator of Stacey's murder and that the true perpetrator of Stacey's murder is never been truly identified. And so then that leads you to the question of who actually did it? Why was no one held accountable? And as I go through that season, what you learn is not only the the errors that were made in the investigation, things that were never investigated, you know, Clifton Spencer's story alongside Stacey Stanton's story. And then it kind of all comes together the way it came together for me in the investigation, which is if you look at the time frames of the two murders, very close geographical um, areas, Stacy's case happened in Manio, North Carolina, which is the island that I'm from, is very, very close to Kill Devil Hills. A lot of similar characters, a lot of similar lifestyles, a lot of similar uh, circumstances in terms of victimology, the women themselves, how they were murdered, just kind of begs the question of, is there overlap? And as I did the investigations and constantly had new leads coming in on Denise's case and was actively working Stacy's case, I found that there is potentially linkage there, at least enough to investigate and for law enforcement to look at. So that's where it kind of is like, whoa, like wow factor, because two separate things that I had no idea had any uh, connection may potentially have some connection. And so yeah, it's pretty crazy, especially when people listen to it. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it, it's what's, what's super interesting about it is that there are enough similarities in the cases, even though they're, they're you know, they're seven years apart, but they're, you know, geographically, they're in the same area. MOs seem very similar. But of course, police never connect one to the other because in the earlier case, Clif Clifton Spencer is is arrested, pleads no contest, and is in prison when the second case one... Case closed. Right. Case is closed. The second one happens. So, of course, they're not connected. So, I, I think that, for me, someone who works in wrongful convictions, the, the Clifton Spencer story really, really piques my interest. I know it'll pique my audience's interest a little bit. So, 
I think kind of the potentially, if they're connected, the impetus for this case, uh, for Denise's case never getting solved, could go back to you know a, kind of an error carried through in the fact that that Clifton is potentially wrongfully convicted of of Stacey Stan's case. So can we talk a little bit about about Clifton's case? Why was he a suspect? And what was the evidence against him? And why did he pl- plead no contest? Yeah. So Clifton became a suspect very quickly because Clifton was in the same bar as um, the victim. Uh, but so were a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Mr. Spencer was the only African-American man in that bar that right. night in a predominantly white town, still is a predominantly white town. He was an outsider. He was from a town right over the bridge called Columbia, which is almost to this day, 90 percent African-American. Um, so you have this this sort of schism in terms of race. It was also the community in the bar, including the victim, was a was a heavy drug user community drug users and abusers. So you have this sort of convolution of a of um, a not so great crowd, which is, you know, again, unfortunate, but that doesn't make somebody a murderer. Um, Clifton Spencer is not a murderer just because he was a, a drug user. Right. He there really is. There is no forensic evidence linking him to the crime. There's no eyewitness evidence linking him to the crime. You have to look at the pressure that was put on him by law enforcement and investigators. Um, they wanted a suspect. They wanted a suspect fast. They wanted someone that they could just could fill the shoes for it. And I think that's what they kind of molded um, Clifton into. Um, they didn't look in any other avenues. They didn't investigate any other suspects. They actually didn't even interview some people that could have been potential eyewitnesses. So, so you have to look at all of that. And I think that's how that case against Clifton was built. But I think the bigger part of it that people learn throughout the season is 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 race is a is a big element. And um, it became a huge element for him as he entered into, okay, I've been arrested. I've been interrogated multiple times, questionable legality of those interrogations. And then the plea, bad legal representation, um, unfortunately, by an attorney who happened to be African-American just wasn't a good um, good attorney. Whether he was African-American or white or whatever race, the, the man was not a good attorney. Um, and so because of that, you had Clifton take a deal that he didn't understand. Um, state of North Carolina, their, their laws about how plea deals work and sentencing guidelines were, were misrepresented to him. And so it was just a, a classic case of... of I just believe wrongful conviction. I truly do. And and that's the really sad part about it is I go back to, okay, if this man didn't do it, then who did and who got away with Stacy's murder? That's the bigger question. I think that that is haunting and always will be. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have potentially someone who got away with murder, potentially killed someone else that we know of. And then you have you know, Clifton, who's had 30 years of his life as of now, already stolen away from him. Yeah. And it just seems like he was literally plucked out of a crowd because he was the one that stood out. I mean, he's there's a I mean, were, were there any witnesses that said, oh, the two of them that uh, Stacy and Clifton were together that night, they left together, they no. had an argument. It's like they reached in and found the black guy and picked, plucked him out and just started interrogating him until they bully him into a plea deal. It was it really, truly was um, that way. And I like I, I tell other people, I have read Thousands and thousands of documents on this case 
transcripts, handwritten transcripts, notes and scraps of paper from police officers and 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 other people involved in the case. I mean, I've read everything you can on this case, and it really is just that. It, it there is not a single person that places him with the victim in any incriminating fashion, but even beyond that, because eyewitness it, it, testimony is what it is, forensic evidence. Forensic evidence in a murder of of that nature, the way Stacy was murdered, that murderer would have had forensic linkage, no doubt. And I think still probably does. It's just not Clifton Spencer. <laughs> that's well, just I, it. That's what I was going to ask. Was there any like testing done? Because surely there's, I mean, because this murder, there was multiple stab wounds to the neck, right? It was the, the oh, cause yeah. of death there. So it was you a, have a fight. Yeah, a brutal, bloody, face-to-face, hand-to-hand fight. There and I know it happened in 1990. DNA w- was kind of in its infancy, but it was around by 90. Yep. Officers knew to at least to collect and keep evidence like that. Has anyone ever gone back and you know tested for DNA under you know from hopefully they took scrapings under fingernails or has there ever been any testing done and compared to Clifton? Yes. So there was. Um... There was when it initially was back in 90, you know, they they found some cigarette butts in the apartment with one cigarette butt with Clifton's saliva on the cigarette butt, nine others with other people's saliva. Well, they didn't identify those other salivas. They identified the one by Clifton. Well, Clifton admitted, yeah, I went into Stacy's apartment that night. I, I was there. I wasn't there when she was murdered, but I was there. Another eyewitness confirms that. So he's not saying I wasn't in the apartment. You know, his finger, he had a fingerprint on like a table or something. Not a bloody fingerprint, just a fingerprint. So, so yeah, there's, there's things that put him in the apartment, but there's no forensic evidence on those incriminating things, right? So the hairs found on Stacy's body in her wounds, right? Hairs don't get into wounds unless those hairs either belong to Stacy or, or the killer. Well, mm-hmm. they didn't belong to Clifton. They did that test. Some of them didn't belong to Stacy. Some of them did. So, so you know that there's a foreign... Um, a foreign element there, somebody else. So it's not Clifton. It's not, you know, it's not Stacy. Right. So, so yeah, there was some things done. I know in 2004 and 2005, there was additional DNA testing done um, to try and narrow down the scope on um, some, some other parts of the hair. But again, by that point, you're talking years away from the initial crime scene preservation. So right. a lot of that evidence was not taken care of. And that's just another hurdle. I still think there's things that can be done, should be done now. But no, I mean, there's nothing, there is nothing forensically saying that Clifton did this. And then again, you add on that eyewitness testimony, no bloody clothes. I mean, this, this, the wounds on Stacy were so significant. I've seen the crime scene photographs. It was very hand to hand, very, very close. No way that the killer would have gotten out of there without being covered in blood and would have had to dis- discard those, um, those those items that they were wearing. There's just no way. And so the fact that Clifton is is clocked uh, just just shortly after this supposed window time of the murder by his friend and sleeps in his friend's recliner. There's no blood at his friend's house. There's no clothes. This is a guy who was high on drugs walking the streets. He he didn't mastermind something and he had nothing to change into. You know what I mean? So there's Mm -hmm. just there's so many things that that line up that say this is and they should have lined up back then for investigators. And and then ultimately that was his what what the police led him into as far as his plea was that he pled to second degree murder and said that he doesn't recall you know is, to his recollection he doesn't remember 
doing this to her, but pled out because due to the drug use or whatever they, you know, they convinced him that maybe he just doesn't remember it. Yeah. So basically what it came down to is they sat him down multiple times. Again, questionable legality of any of those interrogations. None were recorded, no transcripts of, of many of them. They basically told him, you did this, right? Well, I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, but you did this. So, so it's the, the feeding of information, mm-hmm. having someone inadvertently confirm things that are untrue. So you have a lot of fabricated statements, a lot of fabricated reports about what he said, what he remembers, what he doesn't remember. And the DA says, well, we've got all of this against you. If you don't want us to seek the death penalty, then, then you'll plead to second degree murder. And he goes, his attorney says, yeah, they got you, man. They're going to they're going to fry you, you know, is essentially. And so what is he then to do except go, OK, well, you tell me if I take this plea deal, I'll get maybe five, 10 years. You know, I, I don't want to put my family through any more heartache. Let me just let me just do this. Right. And then it, it, I didn't do it, but I'm not going to say I'm guilty, but I'll say that there may be enough evidence against me to convict me. So I'm going to to plead to no contest. So a lot of confusion, a lot of misunderstanding of his rights. Um, a lot of bad manipulation on on the state side of things that all made him go, well, yeah, I don't remember anything. And, you know, I have no evidence to the contrary. At the time, him and his attorney had no idea any of the other statements that had been taken by other eyewitnesses. So, you know, there's so many, so many things that just create this vortex of this was just systematically wrong all the way down the line. Um, and yeah, it ruined it, again, it ruined Clifton's life, but more so think about the victim and the victim's family who all of these years, right. all of those years in the 1990s and the early 2000s and even to this day say, we just don't believe this man did this. They never got justice, which is just as bad. So that's what's really heartbreaking, I think. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. For sure. And then, and then uh, you know, like we said, there's the, if there is a connection between Stacy and Denise's cases, then the fact that they let that killer, the true killer, if it was, a, if, if it was somebody else in Stacy's case, walk free, it could have been what cost Denise Johnson her life. So let's talk a little bit about Denise's case. So. That one definitely piqued my interest when I started listening, which was so, you know, chronologically, they're backwards. So the 97 right. case was season one and the 90, the 1990 case was season two. So I started with season one and right away, um, I don't know if you know, but I was a, I was an arson investigator oh. uh, before I was a podcaster. So as soon as I started, you know, the, your first episodes were, were hearing from, you know, the police and yeah. the, the firefighters that were on the scene. And, you know, they said they had the structure fire. They go in and find there's a body inside. And very quickly realize that this wasn't an accidental fire. Right. Yeah. The, the, the thing that really grabs people's attention about Denise's case is that, that arson component, that arson element. And I think from the get-go, you know, anyone that has any experience in, in arson investigation or any curiosity knows that, that that's usually something that's, that's used by a criminal to obliterate evidence, to mask something, to um, 
There's some there's psychological motivations to it. There's so many things. And so I think that's what really when you hear from those first responders and those initial people that are processing it, you kind of understand like where their approach was coming from. But in hindsight, you're like, oh, these were all things that shouldn't have been done. But like, you're not thinking about that in the moment. And so it helps the listener understand what contributes to cases going unsolved. And sometimes it's just the 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 cards that you're dealt. And so, yeah, that's kind of the best way to explain it. Yeah, it's it's tough. That was always I mean, I was a firefighter, too, but also an arson investigator. So a lot in some case, depending what shift I was on some days, I was the one in there putting the fire out and then going back in later and doing the investigation. Sometimes I was coming in to do an investigation after other crews were were fighting the fire, and it, and it it's frustrating, but it's part of the job because you know they're trying. You know, for example, like in Denise's case, if I remember correctly, you know when they found her her body, the first thing they did was get her body out of there. Then there's there's a conflict between the 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 job of a firefighter and the job of an investigator because firefighters are taught if you you know. Get them out. You can't, you can't, if they're savable, you can't save them in the fire. So get them outside. And then the investigators come in and they're like, well, what'd you move her for? Because I needed her in there yep. to be able to, to really properly investigate the crime scene. So definitely, and that's a lot of the reasons why, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's different motives for fire. You know, there's, there's money, there's revenge, and then there, and there's, you know, psychological fire starters. And then there is usually the most common one is it's used, well, money is the most common one, but a close second is fire arson to conceal another crime yep. which very obviously is what was done here and and so did they did they find any forensic case because hers is the one that just for 23 years has just remained completely unsolved yeah was there any forensic evidence was there any leads anything at all it seems like it just you know it's like they they investigated for what seemed like a few days and they're like oh well we got nothing and then it's just sat there yeah, I think I I truly believe that they did collect some sort of um, forensic evidence, uh, again, from talking with people that were present at the autopsy just a couple weeks ago. The state of North Carolina, after almost two and a half years, sent me the full autopsy report for Denise Johnson. I've been fighting for that for years. Got that. Uh, I haven't put out too much information of what's in that, but there are a lot of things in there that tell me Kill Devil Hills PD had at one point, may still have, definitive forensic evidence that could be perpetrator evidence uh, or perpetrator DNA. Should I clarify that? So I think there is. To my knowledge, had they tested anything based on interviews with the family, um, interviews with other professionals? No, I don't think they have. And I, I think they're caught between the dilemma of the little bit that we have do we want to test and we'd use it all up? Right. And what if we don't get any, get any, get anything from it? Then we've used it all up. Definitely understandable. But I will say there is amazing labs in this country, ones I have recommended that will do an excellent job and, and they don't have to consume your whole sample. Sometimes that's the case, but sometimes it's not. If you're just trying to get a phenotype or you're, or you're just trying to eliminate or, or something like that. There are so many cool things that I just think law enforcement agencies maybe aren't as familiar with that if they sought that, they would realize, oh, okay, let's try and do this and see how far we get and just kind of, you know, take it one step at a time. So to my knowledge, no, I don't think there's been any suspect DNA identification testing done on Denise's case. And that's a shame because I think they do. I mean, they took, so supposedly took fingernail clippings 
Uh, Again, another bloody crime scene, a stabbing. Typically, perpetrators cut themselves. A lot of blood. I mean, is there is there their blood DNA there? Is there any other forensic DNA that could link them? And I I think the answer is potentially yes. Um, They did collect a lot of things from that crime scene. Nothing's led anywhere yet. But I I think there's a lot of potential for Denise's case to be solved. Uh, Law enforcement experts and, and DNA experts I've talked to say her case is absolutely solvable just have to have the the right desire and the right elements come together. And I think that's what the podcast was able to kind of uh, catapult, which is a desire to see some resolution, a desire to get out there and reinvestigate. And that was really cool. Right. I mean, you really breathed new life into the case um, because, you know, ultimately you had the Dare County DA, Andrew Womble, finally came to you and 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 kind of thanked you for for bringing it to light and seems now to be more determined to try to find some resolution in the case. Yeah, I think the district attorney's office in Dare County really uh, was rattled in a good way to get this case off the ground. I think uh, law enforcement in Kill Devil Hills, law enforcement in Dare County was really rattled to, to, to kind of reinvestigate this. I know personally right now in real time that there are things happening and they are following leads even to this day that I have put forward. And that's really encouraging because I think that's what this is all about is not just telling a story is 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 trying to make a difference and get people to care um and if it's gonna gotta be pushy then so be it uh but i think that's the whole point and that's really encouraging and um that comes from from my work uh people participating with me people being willing to come forward and talk um and then listeners just getting the word out amidst all that stuff together Right. It's amazing what just a little bit of pressure can do to to get things moving. And and that's fantastic. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is before I let you go is, um, you know, some of the leads you developed. So you were able to make some connections or potential connections between the two cases. And you talk you talk about a guy named Mike and a lady named Patty that that together may have been connected to both cases. Can you just give a real, not don't go into all the details because people can go to the podcast and listen to all the details, but give sure. kind of a brief breakdown on like, like who these people are and how they might be connected to both cases. Yeah. So Mike Brandon, he is deceased now, but he was the uh, abusive boyfriend of Stacey Stanton in 1990. He then went on to marry and have a child with a woman named Patty Rowe. They were key witnesses in the Stacey Stanton case, not that they were spoken to like they should have been by law enforcement or questions like they should have been by law enforcement, but they were an integral part and are an integral part to Stacey and Clifton's story in in that case. They remained those persons of interest uh, by their own statements and through investigative avenues well into the 2000s. Mike Brandon self-confessed to multiple people to having been uh, the killer uh, of Stacy. Not only that, according to other witnesses, he was the self-confessed murderer of Denise Johnson in 1997. And other other statements from witnesses um, and investigative avenues support that. So then that's kind of where the overlap, you have to kind of look at it and go, whoa, 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 what does this mean? So... Uh, with that, these individuals um, local to the Outer Banks could have known, did know both victims, could have been in the same geographic areas, even on the same streets 
at the time that these murders occurred, which I think is almost unfathomable when you when you think about cold case homicides. Right. Putting people in general time frames and this and that, but being able to pinpoint them to a street and their their time in and out of prison to a date. I mean, that's very, very worth looking at. Um, And that's just what I raise in the storyline. And I think um, those individuals, when you listen to the show, you'll you'll understand when you take that 30,000 foot view of, okay, okay, we're not saying they did anything, but we're saying you got to look at it, right? I mean, you have to. So that's my suggestion to law enforcement um, is to say, hey, look, I mean, what does it hurt? Right. What does it hurt? They, they've had to have their DNA submitted for Stacy's case. We know it's in systems. Um, you know, you have the right to go and ask for it. So, you know, there's a lot of things there I think could be could be beneficial. But, yeah, the, there are certain characters that I think are absolutely integral to both of the stories that, you know, you can't ignore. You just can't. No, and you did a fantastic job of breaking down that that connection there where, you know, you have, you know, the, the stories that, that Mike allegedly told people in jail and then you and then documented. Yeah. These are not rumors. These are in affidavits. Like that's right. what's crazy. <laughs> right. And then you and then you go through and the what what I found interesting because you know, the guy's in and out of jail and you go through and look at like, okay, where you know, was he out during this crime and was he out during this crime? And it happened to be pretty narrow windows when he wasn't in jail and it lines up oh, with yeah. both of them and where he was at and everything. Who he was talking to, all of that. Yeah, yeah. And and so you, you did an amazing job. It was a great piece of investigative work in general, not to mention investigative journalism, the way you produced it. The last question is, is, is this going to keep going? Is there going to be a season three of Counterclock? There will be a season three of Counterclock. I won't say um, where the case is or what it's on, but yeah, I am already a year into season three of Counterclock. And I, I will say, and I've said this before in, uh, with everyone, I am always working Denise's case. Um, always. I mean, I got a call right day before Christmas um, with tips and information and stuff. So I'll always be working it how that will flesh out in any future episodes. Again, because I'm trying to sort of uh, surf the, 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 the wave of what's happening with current law enforcement activity and not getting in their way and not inhibiting their work um, or hindering their work, um, I have to be kind of careful at this point now. But in Stacy's case and, and Clifton's story, I'll always, always want to know. I feel like I came to kind of a definitive conclusion at least in terms of as far mm-hmm. as my investigation could go i mean i can't build my own dna lab and start doing dna right, testing right, right, right. if i could i would <laughs> um uh, so there's a certain you know point that i a line there that i kind of couldn't cross but yeah i think season three is going to be it's this it's it's the same thing that i do like that sort of detail investigative stuff the breaking down of information and looking at threads of information it's the same thing I, in all the shows and i think that's what is important work to do so yeah there is a season three but uh, i won't say what on yet <laughs> that's awesome well i'm i'm looking forward to it and and ladies and gentlemen the podcast is counterclock her name is delia diambra highly recommend checking it out and thank you so much for your time yeah thank you for having me
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. And Mike can be found at MurbGaming. M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.